Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine. We also do case studies and we review the medical literature on those topics. Uh, today's show topic is what's new with intravenous vitamin C and integrative cancer treatment at KU Medical Center. Our guest today is Dr. Jeannie Drisco. She is the director of the KU Integrative Medicine Department. Uh, she's a Reardon Endowed Professor of Orthomolecular Medicine. Uh, she's been a pioneer in integrative medicine and she's been a pioneer in intravenous vitamin C. And it seems like every two years I decide to, or I get around to, um, interviewing uh, Dr. Drisco. We've done it 2009, 2011, 2013, and now it's 2015 and the lucky year of the Kansas City Royals. So, <laughs> so with that said, uh, Dr. Drisco, thanks for being on the phone today. Oh, Kirk, thank you so much for thinking of me again, and please call me Jeannie throughout this interview. Okay. I'll be glad to do that, Jeannie. It's easier. So just to recap, you know, what do you do at the KU Medical Center? Well, I am um, the director of KU Integrative Medicine, and we are right in the middle of the medical center's main campus in Kansas City, and it is really the heart. That's what I tell everybody. We're the heart of the medical center, and we uh, are between the School of Medicine and the hospital in uh, a building that's centered right in the middle. And we teach. Uh, we have students of all stripes, from nutritionists to physical therapists to medical students, residents, interns, and we have a fellowship here in integrative medicine. But we also do patient care. So we have a very robust clinic. We have um, uh, everything from pedi pediatrics to geriatrics. Uh, one of our integrative doctors is a pediatrician, Dr. Anna Sparham. And we have an uh, internist, uh, Dr. Nia stephanopoulos Chichura, who is um, board certified in internal medicine and integrative medicine. And then we have advanced practice nurse, uh, phys physician's assistant. We have two master's level dietitians who practice integrative nutrition in our clinic only. Um, and then we have neurofeedback and a naturopathic doctor, uh, doc Dr. Jody Krukowski, and, um, and then our infusion clinic. How, how do people come to the integrative medicine department? Do they get referred from some of your traditional colleagues at the academic center, or do they come from outside, or how do they get there? Well, um, a lot of the patients are here because of word of mouth. So patients are referring their friends and family to us, and that's a predominant way that people find us. Uh, there is some Internet searching, and there are uh, most recently uh, referrals from our uh, conventional colleagues around the medical center and around the region. What's interesting is that when someone, when the conventional practitioner's family members get sick and they can't be helped, they'll send them to us. <laughs> when, uh, when a patient comes to your clinic as a new patient, how long do you spend with them? Well, a generally a new patient is seen for an hour, hour and a half, sometimes two hours, depending on uh, the complicated nature of their story and uh, just how much time they need. So it's really uh, an individual choice uh, how long we see the patient. Okay, but you spend at least an hour, generally speaking. At least yeah. an hour. Okay. And what kind of, when you assess somebody, I mean, are you doing a, a specific battery of different types of more nutritional testing or 
mainstream testing or a combination of both? It's a combination of both, but if someone has already seen four or five physicians before they come here, they already have, you know, all of the conventional tests and then some done. So then we can focus our assessment on micronutrients, on vitamins, minerals, good fats, amino acids, uh, stool testing, and, you know, the, the, the whole gamut of what's considered fringe testing. <laughs> but a lot of those tests that we ordered, we can send them down to the KU lab here on campus and get those tests done. Well, before we get into vitamin C, just tell me, like, your top five favorite tests to do that are nutritional assessment type tests. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I'm going to lump them together. All right, go ahead. So I, I do vitamin and mineral panels. Uh, essential fatty acid panels, amino acid panels. I really want to understand their biochemistry, uh, how they're made up. What, what, how, they, how is their biochemistry working or not working generally, you know, digging into the root cause of the disease. Um, so the, those types of, of blood testing. And then, uh, depending on the story, uh, might take a, a turn towards detoxification. So then we're going to look at genetic panels. And we have been sending people to 23andMe to get the inexpensive total uh, genetic panel and then taking those panels and th having them then send the raw data to uh, there's several companies now that will crunch numbers and, and give you back uh, a whole bunch of their uh, genetic indices. So we're and then they're only spending less than two hundred dollars. Uh, mm. Before it was four hundred, five hundred dollars to get just a few genetic um, polymorphisms checked. But so that's important. And looking, for, of course, for heavy metals or um, uh, urinary organic acids. How how those uh, things are shaping up. How the mitochondria are working. Um, and, and so on and so forth. Or, or if we're going down into um, a wellness or a menopausal, let's go with menopausal, for example, because a lot of women have menopausal symptoms, then we're going to look at a 24-hour urine for uh, hormone um, levels and how their adrenal glands are functioning because a lot, we're finding a lot of the symptoms of menopause are really adrenal fatigue. So if you can um, get the woman out of adrenal fatigue, often their menopausal symptoms disappear without the use of a lot of hormones or any hormones for that matter. So, so how long is your follow-up visit then? I mean, I, I do a lot of testing, and, and I'm just curious. You, you have this initial hour, an hour and a half, and then you do this testing. takes two, three weeks to get back. Then how long is your follow-up? Well, there you go again. It's it's another hour, two hours, three hours, depending on what the patient okay. needs and the education they need around the results of the testing. Okay. And what we're going to do, making the plan. Right, making the plan. Well, let's plan on talking about some vitamin C here because you're the expert, and I always, uh, I, I like it. The reason I like it so much is I use um, KU Medical Center as kind of um, my my credibility index sometimes. So sometimes I'll go, somebody will call us about vitamin C and cancer. I go, well, you know, we, we follow pretty much the protocol at, at the University of Kansas Medical Center. And once you say medical center, whether it's integrative medicine or, or whatever, at least people know it's not pulled out of the sky somewhere. And, and that gives them some kind of 
peace and confidence because they're not probably getting it from their, their regular oncologist, that this might be a very good adjunctive therapy uh, to traditional cancer therapy. So how long have you been doing the intravenous vitamin C and cancer in particular? Well, I was trained by Hugh Reardon, uh, the pioneer, one of the great pioneers of, of intravenous vitamin C use. And I was trained in the 90s, so I have been using IV vitamin C since the 90s. Um, um, but as you know, he, when I came to KU and started this program in the late 90s, uh, I was able to start writing research. And so research is really the underpinning. And and you were very kind to to refer to us at KU Med as, as you know, the place, the go-to place. But I have wonderful colleagues all over the country and now all over the world um, such as Mark Levine at the NIH at uh, NIDDK and um, the group at Iowa uh, and our group at Jefferson Medical, Dan Monty. So wonderful people that are doing a lot of really great research right now. So we're all building on each other. It's just a really exciting time, and I'm sure you saw last week that even Memorial Sloan Kettering has jumped into the fray with vitamin C research. Um, well, how so are they? It, how are they doing it? Are they doing it clinically, clinically like you, or are they just doing some no, stuff in the lab? No, okay. it's still pretty. Um, it, it's still pretty. Uh, um, it, in Memorial Sloan Kettering, they're not. Uh, they're doing the cell tissue and animal research, but uh, my colleagues at Jefferson and at Iowa are doing clinical research, and we have other people that are contacting us now about how to set up a clinical uh, research protocol using IV vitamin C. So the interest is there, and it, it's a, we're at, I hate to use the, the trite phrase tipping point, but I do believe we are at a tipping point. So Mark Levine, he's a, he's a very astute academic person at, um, uh, at NIH, correct? Now, is he overseeing your kind of study of what you're doing? Is there a study going on with you or, or not? We just completed two trials. Uh, Mark, I wrote the trials, so they're, they're mine, I guess. They're KU meds. Uh, but, but Mark and I share things all the time. We're, we're, we're riffing off of each other. It's a wonderful synergism. In fact, I, I want to tell you, uh, he just published a paper that I think is groundbreaking. It's not in cancer, uh, but it, it fits with what we're seeing in cancer. So I just want to mention that he published this uh, work because he noticed that when he was uh, spinning down or centrifuging the red blood cells, um, they in certain individuals, they would break. And in the mice that were bred to be low in vitamin C, they would break. So he got very interested in what's going on in the red blood cell and vitamin C levels. Um, and indeed, in diabetics who have very high glucose levels, their red blood cells will be very low in vitamin C. And that's because the vitamin C and the glucose are competing at the red cell membrane to get in. So when there's high glucose the, uh, in, in an uncontrolled diabetic, then the vitamin C inside the red blood cell is very low. And what happens is the structure of the, of the red blood cell is very weak. Uh, there's something called beta spectrin that gives it architecture and its little disc shape. 
but when when the vitamin C isn't present inside that red blood cell, it's more like a glob or a blob, and it breaks apart very easily. There's no structure to it, no tensile strength. And so this um, red blood cell, when it's trying to get through those little tiny blood vessels to get oxygen to your fingertips and your toes and your brain, it can't do it. It can't deform. It can't. It, it's just this ineffective red blood cell. In that case, uh, the high glucose is the issue keeping vitamin C from going into the cell. Now, Yes, that's true. If you gave vitamin C, does it displace the other way? Um, yes, actually it does. And probably not, not a lot of oral vitamin C is very effective uh, because it's just generally not high enough dose. But if you give IV vitamin C and give it over time, it's going to... Uh, get into that red cell is going to be able to compete and displace that glucose. While you're trying to manage the glucose in that person, you're going to be able to force that uh, vitamin C back into that red cell and make it deliver its oxygen, make it more deformable, softer, uh, not so uh, glob-like. So vitamin C intravenously in a diabetic that's not controlled real well or somebody that has hyperglycemia would be a good thing. It would be a very good thing. And the the science behind this paper is unbelievable. It is so tight. He looked at every angle that a critic might use against it and proved it right. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about intravenous vitamin C. And we're still holding on to the, the theory that, uh, vitamin C intravenously acts as a prooxidant. And, and I believe it, um, makes H2O2 hydrogen peroxide. Was that it, or did I did I That's miss? correct. Right. That's the, absolutely correct. In this extracellular space, it seems like a black hole to me. Whenever I think of extracellular space, I have a hard time imagining it. But I guess it's the space between cells. Yes, it's really a fascinating space. You know, uh, the homeopaths know a lot about the extracellular space. We didn't learn about it in conventional medicine. It was just kind of, as you said, a black hole. But it's got a lifespan and it's got tensile strength. It's got all kinds of activity going on there. Uh, the lymph dumps in there and the lymph comes out. It's it's a just a really wonderful space. And in that space... When the vitamin C comes out of the blood vessels into the extracellular space, it it is it reacts with some sort of a, a, a transition metal, a copper or iron, and it becomes a hydrogen peroxide. So the radical from uh, vitamin C interacts with the metal and becomes hydrogen peroxide. And hydrogen peroxide is very important, uh, not only for killing those cancer cells. Uh, but also infections, and I think just cleaning out that that whole that whole extracellular space. It's a good part of detoxification as well. So vitamin C makes this hydrogen peroxide in the extracellular space, and and that's where the cancer cells are hanging out. I'm I'm trying to figure out if you had a tumor. Yes. How does... it would be? It would be in a clump, although not a very cohesive clump. But it's in a clump. There's not very good oxygen in that area. It's very acidic. It, it, it doesn't use its mitochondria. They still may be there. It's not the cancer cells aren't using their mitochondria to make uh, energy for themselves. They're relying on sugar burning. So they are a very primitive cell. It's like 
uh, our normal cells are very advanced and, and they talk to one another and communicate. But as a cancer cell forms, it becomes like a really uh, primitive organism that doesn't need any other cell uh, to, to for its life. It's completely dependent on itself for sugar burning uh, through lactic acid and it all it wants to do is make copies of itself. So if you think of that primordial soup before um, anything before oxygen in in you know tens of millions of years ago, that's what kind of cell was present then. So this this cancer cell is very primitive. So it can't kill it can't it it can't use oxygen. It doesn't want oxygen. So when the hydrogen peroxide comes along and there's a burst of this hydrogen peroxide, it it uh, the cancer cell is effectively knocked off. It's killed because it doesn't have the more modern machinery that our normal cells have to quench that that oxidative burst. So it's 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 killed. All right now, I think I get part of it. I'm starting to understand. It was only taking me like four of these interviews, <laughs> and then I, then well, I, then I forget. Not, it's just a different way of thinking. Everybody thinks it's oh, it's a genetic disease, you know, and the latest greatest therapies are these gene therapies. But in actuality, it's an energy problem. It's a mitochondrial. It's a it's a metabolic problem. Is what it is. You brought up a a, a potential other therapy that I was going to ask you with you later, but I'll ask it now. So it's an acidic environment. So if you took sodium bicarbonate and gave it intravenously, is that doing anything for that acid area to buffer it? Well, to... you'd really have to get it to that area. The body has a remarkable buffering capacity. So taking sodium bicarb by mouth um, probably would, you know, it would be buffered very quickly in the GI tract. Injecting it in the vein, um, it's very important. There, there's, there's some, uh, there was some Italian research that showed that indeed it was helpful in eliminating some cancer cells. Um, so it, it is important, and of course the the best way to buffer our body is something near and dear to your heart, and that's that's a, a diet that's high in, in good quality fruits and vegetables. So, I, But I know some people do the injection. I was just curious. Um, so, it would, so let's say, for example, you did vitamin C two or three times a week, and then you did the other two days, unless somebody, somebody really wanted to go after it, and you did bicarb the alternate days. Is that something that's mm -hmm. reasonable, or is it, you don't have any idea? Uh, well, I'm not 100% sure yet. Uh, I, I do want to mention, though, that um, we're probably going to be changing our protocol uh, just because uh, we have to make sure that the vitamin C that we're injecting is not acidic. And we've been doing some checking of a supply, and it looks like the, the vitamin C that's being supplied currently may be more acidic than should be. And so we've been buffering our vitamin C with sodium bicarb to bring it up to between 6.5 and 7. In your vitamin <laughs> C infusion, um, are you still holding on to just giving is it either mag sulfate or mag chloride? Yes. Okay. Uh, it appears so. And um, I I'm not sure if you recall, but we did uh, studies looking at the effect of uh, additional glutathione uh, both in the bag and uh, given after the IV vitamin C infusion. And of course, we did cell tissue and animal research 
um, uh, no human research because after we saw the results from our uh, cell and animal uh, data, we, we didn't think it would be ethical to, to continue giving glutathione with IV vitamin C for cancer patients. Now, it may be entirely different in someone that's detoxifying, but with cancer patients, because those cancer cells, and because of their primitive nature, because they don't have a way to protect themselves from, um, from increased reactive oxygen species, they upregulate their glutathione synthesis. The majority of cancer cells are making a whole lot of glutathione. So um, that's how they protect themselves from the hydrogen peroxide formed from vitamin C. So you wouldn't want to give a cancer patient who you've just given vitamin C more glutathione because, first of all, you negate the oxidative burst of the vitamin C, and second of all, you're helping that cancer cell protect itself from reactive oxygen species. Are, are the other nutrients like B vitamins for a similar kind of reason that you um, don't put in there or for different reasons? Uh, for different reasons, we just weren't sure. Uh, it seemed like, and this was a very preliminary, uh, small study that never got published, but it looked like uh, one of the B vitamins, we're not sure which one, uh, reduced the amount of hydrogen peroxide that we were seeing in the urine. Because the patients will make the hydrogen peroxide in the extracellular space, they're also excreting it in their urine. So you can measure that in the urine. Okay, so one of your the, the, so one of the basic tenets, nothing but except magnesium in the at vitamin C. And is that to dilate the, the vessel to make it easier to take in, or what's the theory? Yes, it just keeps those blood vessels relaxed and open and... Um, um, and really take good care of those blood vessels. And with the buffered pH of our solution, our vitamin C solution and the magnesium, we have never seen uh, venous sclerosis. Now, I have colleagues all around the country that have told me they get venous sclerosis after uh, their, their veins become very uh, damaged after time. And um, I, I, I couldn't figure out why. And now I think it's because the pH of the vitamin C that they're using is not buffered. It's too acidic. It's in five, in the pH in the five range. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not acceptable to me. So that's something I've, I'm working on right now. We are talking to uh, Dr. Jeannie Driscoll from uh, the UK, or she's director of the Integrative Medicine Department at uh, UK Medical Center on intravenous vitamin C uh, use in cancer treatment. And just on that bicarb thing, because I know there'll be some clinicians, including people in our office, um, how much bicarb is given per volume of vitamin or per milligram of vitamin C? How do you judge that? Um, I'm trying to see if I can find my sheet quickly. Um, I figured it out, and then I gave it to my nurse. You have to forgive <laughs> me. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but we're going to be adding that to our protocol uh, oh. very shortly. Okay. I'll email you. Maybe we can get that. I'd, yes. I'd like to know. Yes. Um, so, and your dosing. Are you still dosing by doing your before and after um, vitamin C measurements, or how do you how are you doing that? Yes, we're still using um, 350 to 450 milligrams per deciliter of plasma vitamin C. So if you're in that targeted range, it seems to be effective. Now, I have some colleagues who are using body surface area. Now, body surface area is 
that's for drugs that go through liver metabolism. And vitamin C is not metabolized in the liver. It is excreted very quickly through the kidneys. So uh, the, the, and Mark Levine's uh, research uh, with animals looks like that 350 to 450 range is pretty comparable to their cell kill range. So we're, uh, we're sticking to that for now. And for those who don't do the, the sophisticated way of doing it, you have a glucose way of doing it that I didn't, you can shame on me, I, got to, I flunked the course, but I did, we haven't done that. So how do you get it from estimating the glucose Okay, that's a very good question, actually, because it's, it's nearly impossible to get a good plasma level if you're in a private office because it's a very fussy test. You have to get the blood drawn immediately, put it on ice, spin it down, then freeze it immediately, and we're equipped to do that, but offices are not. So what we came up with was a finger stick method. So you take a regular glucose meter, glucometer, and you at the right before you start the vitamin C, you give a you give them a finger stick. Let's say that their blood glucose finger stick before they get any vitamin C is a hundred, and then you give them their vitamin C. And as soon as that is turned off, as soon as you 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 turn that uh, little knob off and there's no more flow of vitamin C into their vein, you do a second finger stick. So let's say the second finger stick reads 450. So you take 450 minus the baseline 100, and you get 350. That's a, that's a pretty good ballpark. Uh, it's very imprecise um, because you might get a glucometer that says error or too high to read, but then you know it's really high. So, you, you know, it's, it's in a good range if it's high. Uh, but that's about as good as you're going to be able to do in a private office. So if it was, if, let's say it was, um, you know, 200, which is not quite where you want, the next time you go up and dose, is that how you? Yes. Okay. And the bottles are 25 grams uh, per bottle. So we just go up from 25 to 50, 50 to 75, 75 to 100. Um, it, it's, it's the easiest way to do it. And you're in a ballpark range anyway. I mean, you're between 350 and 450. But um, once somebody gets into that range, they pretty much stay throughout their treatment until they're better. But uh, there's some people that their cancer has cleared, and um, um, you'll start to and but we follow them for a while afterwards. We make them c keep coming for the vitamin C, and eventually you'll see that that they don't need as much. So would you say the low end, the starting end, is like, let's say, 25 grams up to 100, 125 grams? Is that kind of the range that you flow through? Yes, that's and, correct, up and, to about 125. We've had people higher on higher doses, but I don't – I find diminishing returns. I think it's a bell-shaped curve is what it is. It's just we don't know. And I have some colleagues around the country, in, in my integrative colleagues, who are giving some of them 200 – you know, grams at an infusion. Um, but I, I've never given that high of a dose. Hmm. Do the people stay there all day? <laughs> yeah, well, I hope so. <laughs> all right. Okay, so we've got a kind of a dose range. Now, the frequency is the hard one for me because I never, you know, it, it comes down to economics, first of all, because it's out of people's pockets. No, so that always blunts no. it. So let's say in a perfect world, you have an aggressive pancreatic cancer, would, mm -hmm. and, and money was no object and veins were no object. Would you have that person come in every day, five days a week? 
Or I what? would. Yes, if it was me. I uh, Well, I'll just tell you what Hugh Rudin told me. <laughs> he said, if I have cancer, I would hook myself up all the time. So, yes, the the answer is yes. It it you know the the more the better. Um we just I told you we finished two trials and one of they're both pharmacokinetic studies. And what I'm looking at is the half-life and what's showing up in the urine and and um uh, generally how long would it make sense to treat, you know, the interval in between treating people. Should it be daily? You know, that kind of answer. And what does it do to the calcium? I also have people that tell me that there's definitely a calcium shift and that you have to uh, put calcium in the bottle. Well, we didn't really find uh, too many people that had calcium shifts. It was was not a common finding for us. We did see some calcium shifts. But I think the people that are seeing it all the time have a pH problem with their solution, their stock solution that they're injecting. Well, I remember the old work by Klenner way back when. He would throw calcium in there. And mm-hmm. and so is there a rationale for calcium just because of that theoretic Well, um, I issue? think when people saw the shakiness that some patients had that shakiness, you know, maybe the infusion was run too quickly or whatever. There is some calcium shift in some people, but not in my pharmacokinetic study, not all the people that were shaky had calcium shifts. And we measured, you know, the, the, a complete blood panel uh, at baseline and then again immediately after the infusion was done and then 24 hours later. Would you so s- it's going to be fascinating. We haven't drilled down to all data yet, but it's, it's, it's really fun to look at. So would you say your average patient comes in two times a week when they have cancer treatment? I'd say that's pretty typical. If it's aggressive, we we really encourage them to come three times a week. Okay. And a lot of times you'll get like a breast cancer patient, let's say they had a little lumpectomy and they go on some, and this is another topic, chemo and or radiation, but they're really, it's not, it's, it's a slow kind of, it's more of a preventive thing. Is yeah. one, does once a week reasonable? Or yes. I mean, if you don't have disease to follow in a cancer patient, how do you know what you're treating? And, well, you know, there's also, you know, maybe they shouldn't get vitamin C. Maybe it's watchful waiting. Or if they really want vitamin C, then we don't do that more than once a week. Right. Well, for example, I just had a lady that, you know, had a uterine cancer and she gets a total hysterectomy and all the nodes are clean. So it's yes. like... They, yes. They're interested in vitamin C, and I go, well, you know, I mean, you come in once, twice a week, but, but it's, it, I, I do it as long as they're being more observant, I guess is what I'm saying, when they're more yes. frequent follow-ups. I, right, right, right. I've been through the same thing, and I don't have an easy answer for that. Okay. All right. How about, this is another practical one. So I heard before you said that you can give intravenous vitamin C during or almost with chemotherapy. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have to skip a day or whatever. So is that true? Let's say someone came in and they got, theoretically, chemotherapy in the afternoon and you gave them vitamin C in the morning. You would say that there's no problem with that? I'd say there's no problem with that. And I can say that because we have checked, in, in studies not all are published yet, but we've checked with a variety of chemotherapies. The only one that we don't uh, give with IV vitamin C is the methotrexate when it's administered in the hospital. 
not the lower dose, but the high dose where you have to go inpatient. And that's because the oncologists have to keep their the urine pH really um, alkaline. And, you know, these patients are, you know, acidic anyway. If you measure a cancer patient's urine uh, pH, it's acidic. And, in fact, if you give vitamin C, it doesn't change the pH or the urine in any way, which I think is fascinating. But anyway, because of that patient being in the hospital and keeping the urine buffered, we just don't give the methotrexate to those patients. But we've seen uh, either an additive effect or synergistic effect. And synergism, for people who may not know what that means, means when you add the chemo and the vitamin C together, they're both stronger than giving either one by itself. So there's some sort of an effect. Um, uh, vitamin C makes it much more effective. And if they're getting radiation, let's say for, you know, 20 days straight or something like that, you mm-hmm. choose not to give the vitamin C during that time because it makes I the person too hot? Because it's, it potentiates the radiation. My uh, good colleague, Dr. Collin at, at Iowa, just did a study looking at the effects of IV vitamin C and radiation together, and it definitely potentiates the radiation. We knew it anecdotally. We just knew it from experience. So, uh, and the, and the, oncolo- the radiation oncologist figure the dose of the radiation that they want to give so that they don't, you know, cause burning and, mm-hmm. or too much of an effect. So they're not taking into account vitamin C uh, in that dose. So what we do is we just wait. And, it, you know, it's generally two weeks, three weeks, whatever. So it's not a huge wait, um, um, you know, if they've already started. And then they can take a, a little break. But then we ask them, as soon as you're done with your radiation, get back in here. How many of your patients, though, like, so I always ask myself, how do I know the vitamin C is helping? I mean, someone says they feel better, great. But let's say the breast cancer problem it may not have come back anyway with a the traditional therapy, so yeah. I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing in the sense of... I know, I right? know. So, we, we go through the same thing here, um, and that's why, you know, we talk about uh, the watchful waiting. But I want to tell you there's one interesting uh, bit of information that we found from the ovarian cancer trial that was published in Science Translational Medicine last year. We found that there was something that we're calling the feel-good effect from vitamin C. So the patients that received the traditional chemotherapy, these were advanced ovarian cancer patients, and they were newly diagnosed. They all went to debulking surgery, had everything out, and both groups got uh, carboplatin paclitaxel chemotherapy, but one of the groups was randomized to get IV vitamin C. And in that group, there was very limited number of uh, grade 1 and 2 toxicities to adverse events. So, and most of those are subjective. They don't feel well, they have headaches, you know, there's things that you can't quite put your, they're not in the hospital because of a UTI and sepsis. They just feel better. And so we've done a small study looking at fMRI or functional MRI um, and what happens when you, before and after you have vitamin C, does it change the way you perceive things? And we believe that that our hypothesis is, yes, it does, but we haven't looked at all data yet on that either. Let me ask you, I got a couple more quickies, and then we'll let you go, go back to work or wherever you're going. But um, I'm back at work. <laughs> so oral, do you use oral vitamin C at all during the cancer process? Yes, do use it as a, as a 
just a vitamin as an antioxidant. I mean, um, are you a couple grams a day, mega a doses? A couple grams a day. Okay. Um, depends on what the, the patient can tolerate. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a million and one things, as you know, that you can give during cancer care. And, um, you know, people may want medicinal mushrooms and, you know, there's all kinds of things. And the, the enzyme therapy, uh, Gonzales is wonderful en- enzyme therapy. I mean, there's a million things you can well, recommend. Well, tell me, while you brought that up, because one of my questions, what are your, like, top five, let's say, of, I mean, of nutrients that you might <sighs> throw on the pile? Just top five. Uh, you uh, know, top five I don't top know five. if I can answer that. <laughs> uh, some of them need uh, coenzyme Q10, for example. They're... Um, and we're fortunate that when we get our coenzyme Q10 levels, we also see the percent reduced. And a lot of these people, their percent reduced, instead of being around 95%, which is in a healthy range, they're down in the 80%. So they're they're very oxidative and, and they need. So, you know, it might be CoQ10. It might be medicinal mushrooms like turkey tail or whatever. And, you know... <sighs> I can't answer that. I don't know. Right. I'm, I, it's every person different. I got it. Um, do you believe this is a little bit off it, but a lot? Some of our patients are going to integrative um, cancer clinics, and they're um, getting sensitivity testing from like labs in Greece, and mm-hmm. I think there's one in Korea too. But for for chemo, low dose chemo, or to nutrients, what do you think about yes, that? Yes, right. We've we have had a lot of patients use the Greek test and similar tests. Um, also now these newer tests looking for circulating uh, cancer cells either in the urine or in the in the blood. I mean, there's a very conventional new one out, the Oncoblot now, uh, but it's very expensive. It's like $850. But, you know, it looks like there's utility on some level for all of these, but they're, they're expensive. And so, you know, your patients are paying for and doing a lot of things. And... You know, you don't want them to be spending thousands of dollars every month out of pocket I got it. for, you know, therapy. So, you know, we, we're, we're cautious. We work with patients. But, yes, we have used those tests. Are you still using the ketogenic diet and uh, hyperbaric oxygen on your cancer patients? Um, when we're able to. Um, you know, I think everyone's metabolism is different, and some people do really well with ketogenic diet. But... Uh, theoretically, um, it should uh, be effective in helping, but, uh, you know, you, you can't do the ketogenic diet and do junk, I mean, you know, it, it's bad food. It's got to be real food, which you advocate. You've mm-hmm. got to have real food in the diet um, and, the, and the good oils. Mm-hmm. If you don't have those things, it's not going to work. You're going to have high-calorie um, uh you know, the high-calorie, poor choice in foods, and you're not going to get in ketosis. You're just going to be spurring your insulin on and your glucose on to feed that cancer cell. How about hyperbaric oxygen? Are you getting... Hyperbaric, I, if someone can afford to go, I think it's a one, two, three punch. You're adding a good diet, which is foundational baseline, to the IV vitamin C, and then the oxygen, further oxygen therapy, the oxidative therapy with uh, hydrogen peroxide. Okay, and last question, I promise. Um, when physicians, is there a place to guide a physician to your site that um, that are an oncologist? Uh, you know, if let's say I send somebody to your site and I say go to this link because uh, if your oncologist reads it, it'll be least 
somewhat calming to him <laughs> or, you know, yeah, or her. Yeah, right, right. Um, well, th- through KU Medical Center, we have um, integrative med kumc.edu, but if they just look up KU Integrative Medicine, they're going to find a link to us. And we're building a new website now. Uh, I have a lot of young practitioners here in this office. And, um, you know, they said, our website looks like it's from the 90s. So we're building a new website, and it should be uh, up and running here in the next uh, three months or so. And it's personalizedhealth.org. So. Will it have a place though for the weekend? Um, you used to have a question and answer for um, your, yeah. your doctor. We're, we've uh, that's been uh, rewritten, and I think it's better. Um, and so that'll be on the new website, and we'll we'll have our our old website up still. It's just not very interactive, and so hopefully we'll have blogs and discussion boards and those types of things for people to you know much more interactive. And the website is. Um, the new one is personalizedhealth.org, but the old one is you can find by Googling KU Integrative Medicine. All right. Anything else you want to say before I let you go back to work? Sorry I took so much of your time. Oh, you. this is great. I always appreciate uh, hearing from you, and I, and I really appreciate your, your email blasts and the updates because a lot of these things, you know, I might have missed them if you hadn't dug through the literature and interview these people. It's such a valuable tool, so keep up the good work. Well, we'll keep doing it. So you keep it up, and uh, I'll talk to you. I'm going to try and make it a year. I'm not going to make it two years anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, Jeannie, th- Jeannie, thank you for being on the show today. All right. Thank you. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of Staying the Staying Healthy Today show. Uh, you can go to stayinghealthytoday.com, sign up for my podcast, my health letter, and I will always have underneath the podcast references to KU Medical Center and some of the links that are important. So until next time, stay and be well.